0: You're listening to the Nerd to Know Media Network. Join us at nerdtoknowmedia.com.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Nerd to Know Basis show, airing from Phoenix 92.5 FM or indeed Spotify if you're listening to it afterwards. My name is Kino Calcón and... We have a special guest with us today, an Irish author of the YA series Knights of the Borrowed Dark and of some Doctor Who short stories of very wide renown and a friend of mine. Would you mind introducing yourself?
0: Hi, I'm uh, Dave Rutten. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure to invite John. Before we get into all the kind of professional stuff, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm tired. I have a child.
0: <laughs> um so it's it's sort of my it's my preface for every single conversation I have now with everybody. It's like, I'm sorry, I'm very tired. I have a child. Um, and he's the best thing in the world. He's a tiny, gorgeous nugget of a of a of a boy. But um people, I mean, you you know this as well, people warn you beforehand it's going to be the most tiring thing and you listen and I wanted to respect the people who give me that opinion I'm like yeah no absolutely I understand it's gonna be very tiring my good god <laughs> <laughs> it is worse it, I... they could not have prepared me it is so great but also it's like the last day of a festival except forever <laughs> and with all the good and bad that implies it's really good how are you doing
1: uh you know what actually it's much the same long-term listeners will know that uh my daughter primrose has made cameo appearances on the show when i forgot (laughs) to turn off the microphone uh this is a parenting podcast now yeah exactly yeah oh i mean look let's be honest this is what it was going to be but i think it's actually worth noting for the kind of time capsule nature of a podcast is that we have lockdown babies so we were shooting the, the breeze about this a bit before the recording. Like, how have you found what you would expect having a kid in a normal world versus kind of with everything being closed or has that kind of affected your life at all?
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose when you think about parenthood, or at least for me, I often thought about like how much fun it would be to sort of introduce my kid two things but mm. uh with lockdown the only thing i could kind of introduce him to was the television which you're not really supposed to do um <laughs> although i watched um we talked a bit earlier I'm, I'm working my way through anime that i would have missed growing up in in the wilds of Cavan, and so i watched this is probably ill-advised i watched end of evangelion with my six-month-old <laughs> And I'm glad that he can't talk because otherwise he might have asked questions as to what was happening. And I really couldn't have explained it to him. Um, So it's been it's been weird. It's been it's been tough, isolated from our families and been tough, isolated from people who might like come over. And and, like my friends have found it tough not to get to meet him, except in sort of like the brief windows of non lockdown. But at the same time, it's just such a huge global catastrophe that you can't really give out about not being able to get someone to babysit you know there's just too much else too much other stuff going on it was it was tough not being able to go in for the um for the ultrasound visits and things like that but we got through he's happy he's healthy like I can't really ask for more
1: oh I didn't even consider that so you kind of this this was locked in was in the kind of pregnancy stages as well then like
0: yeah a lot of hanging out hanging around outside the rotunda with a hundred other worried dads Mm. um and then luckily i I got to be present for the birth um which is which is really important and it is just kind of the starter thing so you know i've got to hang out with him since which is nice um Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean it's 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 tough and it's weird but sure isn't that 2020 slash 2021 all over
1: that's true. Well, I mean, with that in mind, kind of let's talk a bit about your kind of writing career then, like because you have a new book on the go. I like currently we may talk about that depending on your discretion. Cool. But people will know you kind of as the author of the trilogy, The Knights of the Borrowed Dark, uh, which always sells really well in the bookshop I work in, and for your two Doctor Who collections, The Twelve Angels Weeping and The Wintertime Paradox. Big question, which you're perfectly Able to refuse to answer. (laughs) Kind of how did you kind of get into writing? What made you interested in writing, first of all?
0: So for me, growing up in a tiny village in West Cavan, like literally there are more people on this podcast right now than there are in the village where I'm from. Um, (laughs) I was always fascinated by books. I was a very shy kid, I was very anxious and writing, it sounds cliche to say it, but writing was a refuge. Writing and reading were a way to sort of make sense of a world that didn't seem to make any sense to me, particularly fantasy fiction, because uh, you look at um, these worlds and you want to visit them and you want to live in them. And you also learn things like perseverance. And and I grew up on Terry Pratchett. Terry Pratchett's my favourite author. And it's only sort of looking back now that I realise how much of my sort of internal moral compass and philosophy come from Pratchett's ideals of being kind and trying to help people and trying to like you know look for the quietest person in the room and make sure they're doing okay and all the different things he espoused in his many books and so I built uh, a world for myself out of these different novels and for a long time I wrote but I only wrote as as a hobby and as a way of telling stories I wanted to tell I never thought I could be a writer, like Mm -hmm. drawing a line from, you know, awkward 13 year old in Cavan to Sir Terry Pratchett just didn't seem viable to me. I didn't Mm -hmm. grow up beside writers. I didn't go to to writing classes. I didn't know they were a thing. Um, It was only when I got to college and I got involved in acting and I got involved in Dublin's spoken word scene that I met people who weren't published or weren't like best-selling authors or anything like that, but were one step up the ladder from me. And so I could learn from them. And then I found people who were further up the ladder and people who were, and this is, I think is, is good advice for anybody who's looking to get into writing is find people who are also sort of, trying to get their work published and going to writing classes and find your way into that ecosystem. And that's what I did. I went to launches mostly because there was free food and I hung out with people who were, who were trying to get their work into journals and into competitions. And I just sort of brought me along with them basically. And uh, I did that for a few years and then I ended up studying the creative writing masters in UCD pretty much because I was like, look, I've been doing this for a while. I've had a couple of small publications, but if I'm going to make this a job, if I'm going to go give this 100%, I need to study it. I need to really, really push myself. And during that Masters I wrote the first chapter of a YA novel and nobody liked it uh, in the In the course, they were all like oh, it's, a bit, it's a bit violent, it's a bit scary kids <laughs> yeah. won't like that and I was like oh you, you haven't met teenagers and
1: I was going to say you haven't read like Darren Shan or any of the popular Irish teen authors clearly exactly and, it, and it, was, it was the
0: first chapter I wrote was very influenced by things like Artemis Farrell where the kids were sharp and sarcastic and were powerful in their own way and had their own aims and their own desires and were the kind of kids who, who like thought themselves out of the problems they were in and that first chapter went on to become Knights of the Borrowed Dark my first book um, I ended up selling the trilogy to Penguin Random House that I've just been running around like a mad idiot ever since basically
1: well, then, actually, because let's go into this a bit, because I was a bit of a spectator on the sort of, for lack of a better term, the sort of the wilderness years before yeah. you became a published author. And you did, it's worth mentioning, you did a lot of acting. You were in a theatre company with Deirdre Sullivan and I have another friend of ours on the show. Like, mm. you know, you're doing lots of spoken word and lots of different types of things. Did they help you kind of self actualize into an author or... Was it sort of like what kind of effects did that have on your career and the way you write now?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And also, um, if if listeners are looking for an incredible feminist dark fairy tale writer, Georgia Sullivan is absolutely incredible. Uh, her collection *Tangleweed and Brine* or her her most recent one, um, which I'm blanking on the name of, but I have it on my shelf.
1: Kean, what is the the
0: uh, the, 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 the uh, Children of Lear retelling. It's right reply. Me, If I can move my Savature chair. Reply.
1: It's, it's the one that's based on the Children of Lear and I'm going to Google it now. And it's Savature Reply. That's it. Deirdre, if um, you're listening, you have earned the right to slap me the next time I see you. <laughs> or not, because it is a book that made me cry and not many do that. But yeah, so how did kind of working? You mentioned kind of talking about kind of meeting people who are like one step above you, all that kind of stuff. Did that kind of influence you creatively or did it just make you a bit more kind of career savvy like? Yeah, I mean, look, every writer is different.
0: Every writer's path to writing is different. And that's what makes writing very frustrating, I think, is because you can sit down and study how Neil Gaiman or Ursula Le Guin or Naomi Novik or any of these authors got their start. But you just end up with loads of different paths and it's hard to know which one to throw all your energy into. For me, as somebody who... (laughs) <laughs> grew up very shy and therefore now needs a lot of validation yeah. i um i really liked being on stage i really liked uh pretending to be a confident person and i ended up going to a lot of spoken word events um going to a lot of storytelling events and showcasing work there like and getting very for me i became obsessed with the idea of musicality in your writing and the idea of um this flow and rhythm you could achieve by being really sharp on your sentences and making sure they were edited, making sure you tuned each sentence like a guitar string basically, because when you're in front of an audience, you don't have time to ramble for four or five paragraphs and then come back to the main point. Like for example, I'm a huge fan of Robert Jordan but those books would never have gone down well it on an open mic night. After the fourth description of a Domani dress, you'd be like, all right, Robert, you can cut some of these, some of these descriptions.
1: You, you've talked to someone who's had to pack two of each of his book into one shelf. I get it completely. Like <laughs>
0: That shelf must have been nine miles long. Oh my God.
1: Um, Where, the, Tolkien doesn't get a look in now next to <laughs> near Jordan, like, you know.
0: <laughs> but so, so I became really into that sort of... Um, the performance element of writing. And I do, for me, at least writing is a performance. You are always thinking of your audience. You are always making sure that what you're saying has been sculpted and carved to the exact right shape to keep them interested and to keep them hooked. And also, I was very lucky to find people like Deirdre Sullivan and uh, Sarah Maria Griffin, another incredible YA author, uh, Graham Tugwell, an amazing horror and now RPG writer. And these people kind of became my my team and my, my sort of clan and we shared our victories together and we shared our failures and we sent each other um, competitions that had opened and we, we looked out for each other and still do. And like mm-hmm. writing is a job that doesn't come necessarily with an office or with coworkers, but you can build a group or a guild or a team or, or whatever around you and make it feel less lonely like it's just you with the keyboard so I was very lucky that I found the right kind of people early on and very lucky that for me that and I used to be a teacher um but that and teaching and trying to convince 15 year olds to care about writing really sharpened me for writing for young people because you can't talk down to young people they won't stand for it and therefore you have to um and you can't be complacent and you can't rely on old tropes you have to be new and fresh and sharp and meta and all of that went into Nights basically.
1: Well that's actually a great kind of segue into that because like I the weird thing is I do sell your book quite a lot and the thing <laughs> that always hooks new readers into Nights of the Bar of Dark is I mention a quirk the main character has in that which is that He has a list of faces, doesn't he? That like, you know, this is number 34 is the slightly awkward face and all that kind of stuff. What kind of brought you to that world and those characters? Like, I know you mentioned the course, but like, what was your kind of starting point saying, this is the story I'm going to tell for my career and everything like?
0: So for me, my my start, oh my God, I'd forgotten that about Denison's frowns. He has a list of frowns. That's it. Um, Yeah, the frowns. Yeah. Yeah, like... For, for me, my main character, and the book did start with this main character, I wanted to write a hero's journey adventure about a teenager who knew how these stories worked and knew that he was not the kind of kid who ever got to be in them. He is the kind of kid who would ask sharp questions, the kind of kid who would poke holes in the plot, the kind of kid who is not naturally brave. I'm obsessed with the idea of bravery and how bravery to me is not automatic and it's not something you just are. It's something you have to work at and something you have to train yourself to be uh, because it is a series of choices. And so my main character, Denison Hardwick, has just been kicked around by life so much that he is <laughs> as jaded as only a 13-year-old can be. And he worries a lot he suffers very badly from anxiety and part of that is constantly asking these questions so we can kind of see where the next slap is coming from basically and he also categorizes the different frowns he has because and i get into this in 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 the sort of third book where he, he really starts to think about it is that he to distance himself from the pain that he might be feeling, he thinks about how bad that pain is and categorizes it. And this is the thing that I used to do uh, and sometimes still do, is um, to, yeah, to create a distance between yourself. You like hold it up and you look at it and you like like take it apart and you get that sort of scientific kind of clinical kind of disregard. And the thing about Denison is that he, he, he layers all this stuff on himself, but actually over the course of the books, he sort of, realizes that anxiety is just caring about things too much um, which can be a bad thing but I learned and hopefully he learns as well that it's actually a really useful skill when it comes to writing because that part of yourself that catastrophizes every situation and works out all the negative things that might happen is essentially plotting Um, and that's a really useful thing to be good at in writing and so the, the idea of making something positive from something you've always considered a negative sort of rings true throughout the books. The Knights of the Borrowed Dark, my, my main characters, have this vicious uh, inferno of power inside them that is constantly trying to get out through their emotions. Um, now, they can shape it into weapons. They can use it to burn down things it's not a terribly complicated power it, there's no turning mice into teacups or anything mm-hmm. like that it is battle magic basically uh, but the more they use it the more it slowly turns them to iron it comes at a really tangible and palpable cost and that was my way of of sort of processing um anger and thinking about that like anger is not necessarily a bad thing you can use it to drive you you can use it to fuel compassion like terry pratchett certainly did but if you let it rage without control it can be very damaging to you and others so all of this stuff was it was my first book i was i was processing a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. and i think the the wonderful thing about fantasy is that you can take these incredibly important aspects of the human condition and you can manifest them and you can make them into monsters you can make them into heroes you can hold them at arm's length to properly examine them in you and in other people
1: and can I ask them because you mentioned kind of the very kind of the excellent point that like kind of coming to terms with kind of emotions and kind of the anxiety is a fundamental aspect to how all of the magic works was that a conscious choice before you started writing, or did that just evolve out of the process of discovering a story?
0: So the posho, tweed-wearing writer in me (laughs) would love to say that it was completely considered going in, and I had all my themes laid out, and they were all colour-coded in the binder of my soul, but that's not really how I or anyone I know writes. It was definitely... It was definitely something I discovered about the story that I was telling. Like I knew from the outset that the magic would have this cost and that Denizen was a kid who quested everything and poked holes in everything. But it was only as I wrote that I realized that, wow, this goes a lot deeper than I thought. And the more I wrote and the more I redrafted, uh, the more I brought it into line with the discovery that I was kind of making. Like I hate mythologizing or mystifying writing because it's mystifying enough how books get written Mm. but definitely there is a process when you're writing where it feels like discovery it feels like oh this is a theme I'm writing a theme Um, and successive drafts then you make what you were initially trying to say the thing that made you drawn towards writing the book in successive drafts you make that clearer and clearer and clearer until everyone can see it and not just you so i definitely have aspects that interest me and that's that's certainly a thing you see in my in my doctor who work there are certain things that interest me and certain things that don't there are certain stories i have no interest in telling and certain stories that i'm really drawn to and one of them is looking for looking to represent the reluctant hero and looking to represent the people who feel uncomfortable in every situation and and the people who try are trying to find their way towards believing that the good things in in, in the world exist basically i don't think i could write a perfect completely confident non um poisonously questioning person because it would just be too far away from my own personal experience basically
1: (laughs) well I mean you mentioned Doctor Who there so like um you have it's worth saying again you have two collections of 12 short stories one 12 angels weeping which is uh well is it it's not entirely kind of Christmas themed but it is kind of like the rhythm the of the partridge in the pear tree in terms of the titles and you have a more deliberately christmas themed one the wintertime paradox how did that come about and kind of what's your relationship to doctor who in general
0: so um i have a weird relationship with doctor who where you know most people grew up obviously watching the watching the show or watching it with their folks or seeing it when it when it aired depending on on your age i grew up in a valley in west cavan where we didn't have bbc2 <laughs> um so my first introduction to Doctor Who was the books, um, and my first um, my first introduction to, to Doctor Who was a novel called Alien Bodies by Lauren Smiles, uh, who is a sort of a Wilderness Years, really, really. Out oh, there. the kind of
1: Virgin Line adventure, like kind yeah. of when all of the fans had taken over the asylum, but before it kind of came back, kind of era-like.
0: That's a really good way of describing it. I remember doing, um, there's a Doctor Who book club podcast, and uh, I remember doing an interview with them, and they were like, so what was your first experience of Doctor Who when I was like, Alien Bodies by Lauren Miles," And they were like, really? Are you okay? <laughs> really, really out there. The kind of stuff you'd never be allowed to do a, a, a TV episode of. The kind of stuff you can only do when most of the, large control of the franchise has kind of moved on and nobody's nobody's really looking at you Mm. um and through those books i discovered the um or got to watch the tv show um in college i worked my way through classic who then and then obviously in 2005 the year i started college the reboot arrived and i was just immediately completely hooked on this compassionate uh kind snarky hero who um, could go anywhere and do anything and was always trying to do good. I really, really liked that. I mean, Moffat's whole thing was like, you know, instead of a gun, they gave him a screwdriver and, mm-hmm. um, and, and two hearts and all that kind of stuff. And so I've been a fan um, ever since then. And when, I remember it specifically, three months before Nights came out in 2016, um, Penguin Random House, the sort of upper echelons brought me to dinner. It was all very fancy. I was still not in any way used to this treatment, so I was like filling my pockets full of bread rolls and like <laughs> one, one eye on the exit, um, in case they asked me to pay because I was broke. And hey. um, I was talking to this very nice woman called Anthea, and we were chatting about different things, like offhandedly mentioned Doctor Who. And she was like, oh, are you a fan? And I said, I love Doctor Who. I, I, I think it's great. And she said, oh, because I run the Doctor Who line of books at, at Puffin. We have the rights to the, the Doctor Who novels. Uh, would you be interested in writing a Doctor Who novel? And before I could say anything, my editor teleported between us and was like, not until he's finished the trilogy.
1: <laughs> we have booked
0: We have booked him for these books. Um <laughs> And true to their word, the year the last book, The Endless King came out, I got a phone call from my agent who had been approached by Puffin uh, or Penguin Random House. I sort of used those terms interchangeably and that's not technically Mm. correct, but sure look. Um, And she said, listen, you're a Doctor Who fan, right? And I said, yes. And she said, they've asked me, would you be interested in writing a collection of 12 short stories, each one focusing on the monsters of Doctor Who? And there really couldn't be a more perfect brief for me because I love monsters. Monsters are a huge part of Knights of the Power of Dark. And so I immediately said yes. And mm. she said, cool. Now they need it in three months. And I said, <laughs> huh, uh, tell them I can do it. And she said, can you do it? And I said, I have no idea, but I guess we'll find out. Um, <laughs> and that was, that was really, really fun. I mean, like I... I wrote fan fiction when I was a teenager, as a lot of teenagers do, uh, because I think that fan fiction is a really good way of teaching yourself different aspects of writing. Writing is often explained as one job and actually it's like 50, it's character, it's setting and it's plot and it's all these different bits and pieces. Whereas with fan fiction, a lot of those sliders are kind of set. And so you Mm. can focus on teaching yourself plot or teaching yourself character in isolation where the world building is kind of already done for you and so this to me was sanctioned fan fiction and i got to sit down with a list of with the wiki um <laughs> uh which was so useful oh my god the amount of research i did for that book and like god bless all the gods bless um, the people who work on that wiki, uh, know, who I assume do it for free because it's just an incredible resource. And I made a list of my 12 top foes in Doctor Who and started workshopping and brainstorming stories. And they came out and then they were like, oh, it has to be Christmas themed. And like one of the criticisms that people have made of the book, um, which I totally agree with, it's like some of these stories aren't related to Christmas. And to them, I say, Have you ever tried to write 24 short stories about Christmas?
1: Look, even Doctor Who, the show, which, you know, we talk about affectionately, has about 12 Christmas episodes and only about five and a half of them are christmas themed it's fine
0: yeah like planet of the dead is not a christmas yeah <laughs> and i've written well, more it's, doctor it's an who easter short. one
1: but it's not an easter episode either like you know it's yeah it's look doctor who is in a long tradition of winging it and hoping it works out for the best that's fine yeah. by me you know like exactly
0: and like is part of the dead even a because i know it's in that weird band of it's, it's in the
1: David Tennant farewell. I honestly couldn't say if it was a Christmas. I, I, you know, I'm sure we'll leave it to the people in the comments to argue it out, sure. Please educate uh, me. In but the... certainly it's it's arid kind of nature. It doesn't scream Christmas to me. Yeah, But actually, I, feel... I, I wanted to just bring up a point there, which is I recently, uh, on behalf of Geek Garland, did like a top five Modern Doctors thing and it broke my heart trying to rank them. How did you <laughs> narrow down 12 monsters for your book. So that
0: was, that. I mean, some of them were obvious inclusions. Mm. Um, like, obviously I was going to do Daleks. Obviously I was going to do The Master. Obviously I was going to do Jadun. I'm joking, but I did do Jadun because I was like, <laughs> I like the Jadun. Mm. Um, they get a bad rap. Um,
1: oh, I love the Jadun.
0: And they're, they're just fun. And like Smith and Jones is one of my favourite episodes. Um, I actually, plasmavores didn't make the cut for uh, 12 Angels Weeping but I made sure to do a Plasma Plasmavores um, short story for my second collection um, it, was, it was an interesting one, they, Puffin had a list but one of the ones on the list was um, I'm going to mangle the pronunciation of this, um, the rings of because they were doing like five golden rings and they're like oh what about the rings of Canton?" and I was like <laughs> I'm not doing that.
1: <laughs> oh the Matt Smith one with the talking planet yeah yeah, I'm not doing that
0: that's i'm not doing that
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> um so I, I think i put oud in instead um i i am ashamed to say i actually have the book in front of me yes ood the heist is number five
0: yeah and that was i'm never writing a heist story again that was a really difficult story to write um sir <laughs> but actually that story has got sea devils krillatane, uh autons and um the maldivarium in there so i actually packed Mm. a few different things in there. We've Um, got a good
1: one for the wiki entries there. That's your (laughs) gift back.
0: Like this, exactly. This is it. And actually fair play to whoever went through the anthology and like categorised all the references and like found references I didn't think anyone would find and like tried to find the chronology for it. And was like, okay, Mm. this story I think exists between these two ears of Doctor Who again, (laughs) <laughs> doing the doing the Time Lords work, but um, yeah. yeah, it was it was really fun because I think with fan fiction, one of the reasons it's so important is because when you're creating something for a franchise as large as Doctor Who, when you're making a TV episode, you're working under a lot of constraints, and fan fiction simply doesn't have those constraints. So you get to peer into eras and look at characters, and you know have representation that the uh, that the mainline show might be missing, and so. For me, I got to delve into aspects of Doctor Who that I don't think maybe would, for a number of different reasons, and maybe rightfully so, wouldn't get full episodes. Um, And it was funny getting a glimpse of their because I didn't. I mean, I didn't have complete free will with it. There are like obviously consider it. You are playing with someone else's toys, so there were kind of fun considerations there, and like things I had to like check with the BBC and weird things they called me up on that I thought were quite surprising. Um, so for example, uh, one of the stories is a Vastra and Jenny love story set at Christmas. And it's also about uh, Vastra feeling like a, a like a lizard woman out of time. And you know, everyone she knows is dead. It's like that children's book with the dinosaur, like everyone I know is dead. Like,
1: um <laughs> and like
0: you know the doctor gets to run doctor is the last of their kind and they get to like um, run around a lot but Bastra is living in a specific place and and trying to so it's it's, it's, it's sort of a love story between them it's sort of a quiet sort of like romance story but I offhandedly made the Silurians polytheistic and the BBC were like oh are they polytheistic and I was like it's unclear because (laughs) there's been a few different versions they're like okay well don't come out definitively one way or the other because we might want to make them monotheistic later. And I was like, okay. So I just like muddy the gotta waters. Say, I got to say, I think
1: Big Finish actually made them polytheistic recently. I think they may have done you dirty.
0: What? Oh my God. <laughs> I, I, I've taken this to the top. Um, but this, I mean, this is the thing about Doctor Who is that like there are so many stories being told across so many different mediums that inevitably there is going to be a clash or a conflict because... And I think this is a misconception people have of like tie-in fiction. You don't have access, mm-hmm. you do you but you don't have access to every single other story created. I don't even think you can request them. Mm-hmm. Um you so you you have to do your research and, and 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 occasionally um you can track things down and kind of find things out or talk to the authors. But like if something's released by Big Finish the day after um 12 Angels Weep comes out. I, there's nothing I can do about. Uh, but it's Doctor Who, you know. There's there's going to be some. I I don't think there is a shared universe out there that doesn't have like little oddities. I mean, just like look up where Cyclops's eye beams come from. Um, and
1: it's oh de- yeah, or like there's the Atlantis has been three destroyed three times. It's fine. I doc. I think Doctor Who is a flexible enough universe that you can just kind of shrug it off if it doesn't it make of- sense.
0: I mean, everybody's making every effort they can. And mm. I think things will always slip through the net.
1: Well, funny enough, actually, because you mentioned a, a, a strict list of things you couldn't do. You have two very big, immense kind of things, claims to fame franchise-wise, in your first book. One, which is The Nightmare Child, which everyone's yes. been fighting over their granny <laughs> to get at. And the <laughs> other is you technically are the first author to publish a 13th Doctor story. Was that a deliberate thing on your part or like was it just happenstance?
0: 100%. I mean, with The Nightmare Child, um, which I love that there's such a following for, uh, considering it comes from a single line mm. in um, in Journey's End, uh, where where the where 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 tenant is um when you died i saw you you flew into the at the gates of Elysium you flew into the jaws of the nightmare child yeah. and Davros is like I got better um <laughs> and like that story was really fun to do because um Davros is my favorite thing about the Daleks yeah. um um Genesis of the Daleks is 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 definitely in my top five of 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 episodes ever or serials ever. Um and I wanted to explore Uh, the idea of Davros loves the Daleks and the Daleks don't love him because he's not a Dalek and he's, he's created these things and wired them so they will never give him the love uh, that he craves from them and um the notion of Davros sacrificing himself is so alien to anybody who knows Davros but he do it for the Daleks and so i got to explore that i got to tell a story in the middle of the time war which was a lot of fun because you kind of see the time lords at their their terrible terrible height mm. and uh, and it's it's a tough one because i know that i specifically told an origin for the nightmare child that is certainly not the last time you see the nightmare child in the, in the time war, um, or in any of the fiction surrounding it. Um, and then some people liked it. I know there were people who were, were like, Oh, I didn't, that's not what my nightmare child looks like. And I was like, well, yeah. it's an extra dimensional being. It can look like, it can look like whatever, you know, I'm excited for your story on the nightmare child. Like, yeah. I feel like you you never own doctor who even when you're writing it. So it belongs, it and its concepts belong to everybody. Um, with the with Jodie Whittaker, um, what happened was, I the third person I told um, that I got in this job writing for Doctor Who was uh, Sarah Maria Griffin, who was a writer friend of mine, and her response was slightly odd because she said, "Oh, I must tell my ma'am, and I said. Sure. Is she a big fan? And and she said, Yeah, no, she's a huge fan. Uh, when she was a kid growing up in Rings End in Dublin, uh, she was obsessed with Doctor Who and um she was big into science. She fell in love with physics because of dollhouses the idea of something small and even smaller inside that and smaller inside that and she was so into Doctor Who and so frightened by it as a lot of kids are that her grandmother wrote an angry letter to the BBC saying that it was too scary (laughs) But then when she went to, she went to Lakeland's convent school and in, in, in Ringsend and the nuns essentially bullied her out of liking science because they said that science was for boys and it's not for girls. Mm. And uh, you um, you're getting ideas above your station essentially. And she told me this and I said, do you want me to make her part of the Doctor Who universe? And she was like, really? what? And I wrote this story and with these short stories, I wrote each of them in a week. They're 6,000 words long. I didn't have time to not throw myself fully into into each idea. And... This one in particular arrived almost fully formed. It's about a little girl called Patricia Kiernan who uh, looks out her window one day at Christmas and there's a rhino in the backyard of her uh, neighbor's house. The so much and loved
1: to June we were talking about earlier, yes.
0: Absolutely. And she's like, there's a rhino outside and no one listens to her because no one listens to Patricia because she's mm. 10 and because she likes science. And she sort of develops a, um, a sort of a, a black beauty-esque relationship with what is very clearly to, to anybody who's watched the show, a Jadun. But yeah. Patricia, it's the 70s. She hasn't seen Doctor Who. Um, yeah. She does not know about the Jadune, And it's it's called The Rhino of 23 Strand Street. Um, and I went, to, I, I, was, I was mid-writing it. And I said, oh, I better... I better check with my editor and I I got in touch and I said listen um, I really want this to be a 13 Doctor story for obvious reasons Um, and and my editor Tom said listen Dave um, unfortunately we haven't had an episode with Jodie yet you don't have access to the scripts Um, we don't want something coming out early that sort of defines the character or curtails us or fits into a canon that we can't make you a part of so we think it's better off to not make this a 13 doctor story and I was like okay and I wrote it anyway and I I submitted it to my editor and I said I know you told me not to do this but I can't not do it and he read it and he said okay Dave F you for making me cry at my desk it's going <laughs> in I'll talk to the BBC uh and they they actually they put it in the annual again the year after and illustrated it and yeah um my my, my friend's mom is now officially Doctor Who Canon she's on the wiki and uh it mm-hmm. was just really lovely and I just think a very yeah it it, it meant a lot to me to tell because also there, there are very few Doctor Who stories set in Ireland there is there's two to my knowledge one involving the Book of Kells
1: and uh, I can't remember what the other one is and so yeah there's a... a big Finnish one set on one of the Aaron Isle- Islands maybe I oh, okay I, I, as someone who looks for them I haven't found many yeah. so you're absolutely right about that
0: so set, setting a story in working class Dublin in the 70s and nudging a little at the church and nudging a little towards um, uh, towards this girl sort of discovering the fact that people don't get to tell you it just felt very right to tell. And and uh, yeah, I was I'm really that's that story, even though it's not a big, ridiculous blockbuster, is probably the story I'm most proud of.
1: And it's a wonderful story. And actually, even though, like as you say, you didn't have access to kind of Jody and kind of what stories and adventures she was going to go on, I think it's fair to say, without giving away too much, that actually you kind of did capture the way she treats what are seemingly monster-looking things, you know, if that's fair to say. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I obviously I was writing it with, with no kind of prior knowledge, but I think mm. the cool thing about Doctor Who is that the Doctor does have a through line of compassion mm. and a through line of... The Doctor is 99% of the time, if you give the Doctor an out where they don't have to stop you, the Doctor will take that out. Like, the Doctor's not... um most of the depending on the writer depending on the depiction depending on the doctor but if there's a way to sort of divert the flow away from violence and towards some sort of compromise the doctor
1: will be as up for that as as anyone is yeah let's cycle back to your genesis of the daleks thing it's him having the 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 magic button to kill the daleks and pausing you know that's, that's the attitude you know and like it's one of the things that separates um
0: the Doctor and Daffros and the Doctor and like um a lot of the the villains there that will go further. Um it's funny, one of the stories actually in Twelve Angels Weeping is entirely bit. So my wife is not a it's not a huge fan of Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Um and and as and as I like I like I agree with her reason, she's like this. At the time, she was like, this dude just shows up and tells everybody how to be better like him. I was like, that's not, mm, that is, that is correct. <laughs> but you don't, the it's, music's it's, so it's good. It's not entirely
1: uh, wrong. It's, it's yeah, especially yeah. when he's dressed like a cricket player or whatever, you know. And like
0: the, it's a bit like that deleted, um, not deleted scene, that sort of, there's a scene that I don't think was aired in between the angels two parter and um, the vampires of Venice, which I think is an underrated episode where um, Amy is looking at um, sort of a slideshow of all the doctor's companions. And she's like, are they always young, attractive women? And the Doctor's like, no, there was a dog. Um, and I was I was searching for a, a master story to tell. And mm. I sort of yeah. took everything uh, Sarah didn't like about Doctor Who and explored that. And it's a sort of a series of vignettes. I don't give too much away. a series of vignettes mm. where a Doctor-like character is the Doctor, but there's just a slight turn toward on the dial towards evil. And this is this bit where um, you know, he, he's there with a companion, they try and save the world and it goes wrong. And the doctor does the thing the doctor always does, is, you know, takes a big chance and in the show the big chance usually works out. And in this it doesn't. And the doctor's like, oh oh well yeah. and the companion's horrified and it's like I want to I want to leave. I'm gonna I'm gonna quit and the doctor esque character um says okay you can totally leave that's no problem i'll drop you back at your home world um pity what's going to happen to it and she's like what do you mean and he's like oh well i usually there's so many planets and i can only really pay attention to the ones i have some kind of connection with and in 150 years this terrible thing will happen to your world and i probably won't be there to stop it and she's like what what are you saying and he's like i'm saying the adventure is over when i say it's over Oh, my um, God. well,
1: that's, yes, that was, that was my fiance Stevie's favorite in that collection. Oh, yeah. It's,
0: <laughs> that is, that's really lovely. Um, it's, it's a
1: very haunting one now. I, just because I'm slightly conscious of time, I am aware that your wintertime paradox is coming into paperback soon. Uh, yeah. I'm assuming you had slightly more time on this. There was actually a much more Davros and the Doctor-centric story in the second one. Was there a new approach to this new book or beyond it being more Christmassy or like, what was your process?
0: absolutely like I, I try and never. I mean I don't want to write the same book twice you know yeah. so with um with 12 Angels Weeping I'd never written a short story collection before and with Wintertime Paradox I had pretty much the same amount of time but I wanted to be more ambitious and so this one has a a little bit of a meta-narrative running through it the stories are all connected they're all building to something it also uh, showcases one of my favorite antagonists from Doctor Who of all time which is um Faction Paradox, who were also from the Wilderness Years, and are essentially the reverse of all of that sort of protect the timeline, you know, don't interfere. They actually they actively worship Paradox. They encourage it. They like breaking the universe. Um, the and the, they found uh, the right
1: franchise for it.
0: 100 percent. The the entry <laughs> exam to be part of Faction Paradox is to kill your own grandfather. <laughs> like so, so you basically like become a walking paradox it's a lot mm-hmm. of fun and so the, in this anthology there's and this is the first time they've shown up in new who which is really exciting and there's a, a Davro. there's a missy story missy's very close to my heart. um the audiobook is is read by sophie aldred which is just an, an, a Ooh. ridiculous lovely compliment that um, that she would be in any way interested in my nonsense um mm-hmm. one of the stories the first one that i wrote is um essentially Petronella Osgood uh in Die Hard it's <laughs> uh it's a raid on the Black Archive and she's the only person working on Christmas Eve so it's her her scarf and whatever alien tech she can salvage against um against an invasion and um actually uh, Ingrid Oliver who played uh Osgood wrote a really lovely foreword for the book so when the When the anthology comes out in paperback in in mid-October, I think October 15th, it will have a a new foreword. It will also have a bonus story that i wrote for the time lord victorious event that the bbc did there Um, yeah
1: actually i meant to ask you casually where can i find that it's the only bit i'm missing from the collection as it were
0: so the story was featured along one of the cool things that was done during lockdown is stephen moffat and rusty davies and paul cornell and some other people wrote short stories um, that went up on the BBC website. So Canaries, my short story, went up as part of that. So I'm 90% sure it's still on the website. Um, So you can read it there or it will be in the new anthology.
1: Excellent. And it's worth mentioning, I don't want to spoil the whole book, but the ideas, especially, like not to play favourites, but especially (laughs) in the second one, just some of the ideas, you hear them and you're like, all right, I got to know what this is. It's Gallifrey history as Panto uh the doctor and davros meeting for a hot chocolate every christmas like rory visiting riversong in prison like there's just like every single concept is just like all right i gotta see what's happening here what's what's going on like did you you said you kind of wanted to have a through line and stuff but did you just want to be decidedly more ambitious or did that just come from being more comfortable second time around
0: I think I think. Thank you. You're you're very good. I I I think a mixture of both. I think that like on one side, I'd hit my because like I always say that with Knights of the Barred Dark, it was my it was my creation, it's my IP, so I just had to worry about being good or bad. But with Doctor Who, you can be wrong. You can be wrong. (laughs) You can you can you can you can you can write something that is not what people's view of Tom Baker's Mm. Doctor or. Um, or or any of the doctors are and so you have to be super super careful and because 12 angels weeping was really well received which is really really lovely and just a huge kind of vote of confidence it I felt like I could push myself a bit more and I felt that I could I could try out new things and sort of the great thing about writing for a franchise like Doctor Who is that you're not, you're just adding to it. You're not, like, taking it over. You're not directing the entire thing. You're just, like, adding a little room onto the house. And um, so for me, I got to delve into, some of it was, like, things that must have happened. Of mm-hmm. course, Rory visited River in Storm Cage. And also, they have very few interactions on the show. Like, they, mm-hmm. they, they're in groups a lot together. But there's... I would have loved a Rory and River team-up episode. Um, especially... Or especially
1: I go back to the first book, you have an 11th Doctor and Rory episode. So that seems to be kind of part of your kind of mode of operations as well. Like, I love writing Rory. He's so much fun. He's basically, he's basically a grown-up Denison, And... <laughs>
0: He's just so like 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 you know, you can walk into this huge, amazing alien palace and Rory's gonna be like, oh no, why is what's <laughs> happening? Is there a why is there no first aid box on the wall? What's going I
1: think on? it's because he can't run as fast as the other two, and in that regard, I do sympathize with him.
0: <laughs> exactly. Arthur Darville has skipped leg day and and cannot catch up with everybody else. <laughs> um, and like so I, I really wanted to tell that story. I really wanted to tell a story of like running into i have a story called missing habitus frond where a down as luck detective meets missy in edinburgh in 1909 and that mostly came from him meeting her and oh he he finds her on a train and he's like excuse me you're he's having a really bad day he's like, excuse me you're in my seat and she's like what i'd like he has no oh. idea who she is so he's like can you Get out of my seat, please. It's my it's my ticket. And she's and she just takes an interest in him, mm. and that's no that's no good for him. Um, but it just it, it kind of, there's a there's an interaction in it where uh, he's like, "What's your name?" And she says, "Missy." And he's like, "Missy, what?" And she's like, "Just Missy, like Hamlet or Share." And she's a lot of fun to write. Oh my god, um, probably my favorite depiction of the master, I think. Um, <laughs> especially the arc she went on. Um, so yeah, so a lot of it's. Me exploring things I would have liked to have seen in the show, or or just my own little like bits and pieces of interest, and um and I really wanted to explore Davros's psyche because he is so interesting, and I think he's probably very lonely. And I think the the doctor is probably the closest he has to a contemporary and friend, and It's a different relationship than Doctor has with the Master because Davros probably knows he is not the Doctor's equal and that must eat at Davros. Mm. But also I feel like Davros is someone who craves um, not affection. Yeah, like like Davros wants his children to respect him and he wants, I I would imagine he wants the Doctor to respect him. And so I imagine... He probably has two numbers in his speed dial, and it's the doctor and it's the Daleks, and neither one of those are healthy relationships. Um, the the scene in um the scene in the Magician's Apprentice or the second part of that two-parter where they have this hangout together, and um and Davros is like, "You're not a good doctor," and they laugh together. I think I think one of the things that Capaldi really brought to it was, especially with the stuff with the river is they seemed of a, it was a different energy than Matt Smith. It was sort of a more, not laid back is the wrong word, but. Um, no,
1: I get you. Matt Smith is like you run down the corridor and kind of Capaldi is you stop and see if there's any clues in the bricks. Like there's, it's a yeah. slightly different like.
0: And like Capaldi was just, Capaldi was just more tired and would kind of like, was, would laugh helplessly at things that Matt Smith Matt Smith's Doctor wouldn't let himself feel helpless, yeah. whereas The Twelfth Doctor, I think, almost reveled in feeling smaller than the previous Doctors, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so there's a lot of, I mean, it sounds weird to say there's a lot of fan service, but I'm the fan, if that makes sense in the book, There's a lot of me just be like, and like, yeah, I, I, I had a lot of fun writing it, and I think that comes across as well, because I think Doctor Who, at its core, is fun it is high energy high velocity high speed radical compassion towards the universe and i I try to bring some of that into the into the book
1: well then i i ask this question with great sensitivity because we are recording this i think possibly a week after they've announced that somewhere on the horizon there will be a new doctor and a new showrunner and all that kind of stuff uh, I would just ask now that you're sort of part of the universe. like mm. what, if they rang up, would you like to see in a new era of Do- Doctor Who, be it oh aesthetically God. or anything <laughs> like that? And um, for the purposes of this, despite who's listening, there are no wrong answers.
0: <laughs> I have had conversations with my friends who are writers where you are like, would you dare? <laughs> would, because on one side, I am absolutely not qualified to, to take on show Doctor Who, which I know is not the question that you asked, but let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, on the other side, I'm that kind of person who like, if someone rang me and was like, do you want to be Batman? I'd be like, sure, I'll figure it out in the way. <laughs> um, what I would like to see from a new era of Doctor Who is I like the focus on smaller stories. I um, I like the focus on, I like introducing new villains uh, and new foes i i think cinematography wise the show has never been better um i i like the idea of i like the idea of there being a team i think maybe two companions i mean which is what they're doing now obviously mm. um is kind of because it's it's hard writing an ensemble show where the extra character in the room is the setting. Like it's one thing doing an ensemble show like Buffy where all the sets are the same and you don't have to do too much world building episode per episode. I think it's a little harder to do when you have to introduce a brand new world slash timeline every single episode. Um, what else would I like to see? I One thing I'd love um, and this would sort of be my, I'd love for the Time Lords to be back and they're not to be sort of any like, I would like it not to be a plot line. I would like the Time Lords just to be back and the Doctor to be one of many again because Mm. some of my favourite parts of Classic Who are where like like meeting on an escalator you just meet other time lords and they're all weird um like uh what is that first doctor story is the t- the time meddler that's it's it the meddling monk yeah the meddling monk and it's just the doctor's like what are you doing and he's like oh i'm building a laser gun to shoot a viking ship i was like could you stop
1: <laughs> like <laughs> what is this mild um, irritation yeah
0: yeah and i like that sort of i, I like i like that i think that would be really interesting i think that like um I enjoyed the the idea of the, the the lonely God and the the Last of Time yeah. Lords, but I also really like the idea of the Doctor being kept small, you know, being kept as as part of a group. And um, I re- I find it really refreshing in in the new series that the Doctor could announce who they were. People would go, "Who?" Like yeah. not in a in a not Doctor in a, Who kind of way, yeah, but yeah. It just in a I've never heard of you kind of thing, because um, it offers it offers different opportunities. Um, what else would i like to see i like to, you know obviously continuing continuing diversity i like i mean give it to joe martin mm. she you... was incredible in um uh, fugitive of the Jadoon. um mm. like yeah like i would i would like as i yeah i'd like i'd like her i think she'd be a brilliant doctor i mean which yeah. or sure, who knows who it's going to who it's going to be um
1: Give it to Richard Ayuadi. Give it to like <laughs> sure, he's, sure. People have been asking long enough. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I know we're hitting up against the time now, but like you're right. It took much as we love him. It took Capaldi about a season to get his feet, and Joe Martin got it in like a minute. Like you know, she was ready to go. Like you know,
0: it's a it's a it's a funny one. I mean. I think I think you could ask a hundred Doctor Who fans when each Doctor hit their stride, and uh, they'd all have a hundred different answers, and that's sort of the the glory of Doctor Who. Like, I I think that um, it must just be a very weird thing to step into a role with so much weight and power and history. And try and find a way of making it yours. Especially because the first few episodes of every season, I think, are usually written to be Doctor Agnostic. Or to be uh, written for the previous Doctor. And mm. that must be a huge challenge as well. Because they're written for the previous Doctor. But you can't just go in and do an impression of the previous Doctor. That's not going to work at all. And I think as well, I remember seeing a, a meme once that the it was like the life cycle of every Doctor Who fan is... Uh, they're changing doctors. No, this new doctor is terrible. <laughs> oh my god, this new doctor is great. They're changing doctors. Yeah, the so new like, yeah, um, like I think season season ten Capaldi's last season is one of the strongest yeah. seasons um, they ever did. Uh, I loved. Uh, there's a Bill story in Wintertime Time Paradox. So I just love Bill. Like,
1: oh, four that's seasons of movie in the Irish setting. Yeah, yeah, is yeah. The young scientists. That... That's it. Yeah. It's, wait, where is it? Sorry.
0: Which one? It's at a young scientist convention in like 2045. But it's um, in the convention center, isn't it? It is. Cause I spent, I did some gigs at Worldcon two years ago and I spent a lot of time in there. And I was like, I need to, I need to blow this up. <laughs> it, like, perfect, it's
1: Comic-Con happens there. You'll be able to reenact it someday.
0: Yeah, we would need a very large budget, but yes. <laughs> and some hollow
1: projectors. <laughs> And but yeah, I, I, I'm i down for that. Excellent. Well, now, before we kind of wrap, I know that you are looking to kind of you were discussing doing some events, maybe in schools. Would you like to talk about that?
0: Yeah. So because I used to be a teacher and I used to be an actor, I do an awful lot of events. I teach writing for young people. I teach writing for for adults. I teach writing for little kids. I also do uh, author talks where I sort of delve into my own writing and do readings and answer questions about my beard. Uh, so if people are, if there are teachers out there or, or people who want to band together and, 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 and book me for a writing class, um, they can find my contact details at DaveRudden.com. Um, so I mean, or on Twitter at D underscore Rudden writes. Uh, I also, if you're um into watching someone be very bad at video games. Mm -hmm. I also stream every Sunday on Twitch at 3 p.m. GMT uh, at uh, twitch.davediesalot. You can find me there. I'm currently playing Resident Evil Village and being very scared.
1: (laughs) Excellent. Well, you've got the deets there. We'll put them up with the episode as well. So I just want to say, uh, Dave, thank you so much. I know you've got a new book coming out soon. Do you want to mention a date or anything like that before we wrap? Uh,
0: yeah, thank you so much, and This has been a lot of fun. Um, so the, the, the paperback of uh, The Wintertime Paradox is out in mid-October. I'm also currently working on an adult fantasy novel, um, but I'm 115,000 words into it, and so there's no signs of slowing down. So we don't have a publication date for that just yet.
1: Oh, lovely. Well, Dave, thank you so much. I wish you the very best with the new book and with soon to be chasing your toddler around. And uh, (laughs) it's been an absolute joy uh, having you on the show. Thank you so much again. Thank you so much. Uh, All right. To everyone else listening, you may be, if you're on Phoenix 19.5 FM there, you can actually find an extended one on the Spotify afterwards. If you want to hear more of our wonderful conversation, we're going to have more guests in the future. But until then, we'll be back at the same time next week. Thank you so much for tuning in. From me and Dave, it's an absolute delight. And take care. Oh, bye. romantic.
0: Check out the Wrestling Rewind here on Phoenix 92.5 FM every Tuesday at 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. And of course, over on NerdToKnowMedia.com, the only wrestling podcast by wrestling fans who don't hate wrestling. We'll see you then.
1: Thank you for listening to a Nerd to know media production.